in uh, classical education, the trivium is uh, a term that refers to um, a way of describing, a way of learning of different subjects, particularly of Latin, but it's really a way that can be uh, applied to any subject, and that is that every subject has a certain grammar to it, it has a certain logic, and it has a rhetoric, and these things build off of each other. Classical education is, this is the kind of cornerstone of classical education, particularly K through 12 uh, education. And Genesis is uh, our grammar. Uh, Genesis is the grammar which gives birth to, uh, you could say, the logic of the law and prophets and then the rhetoric of the New Testament. Let me back up a little bit. Grammar is like the fundamental data of a subject. It's the building blocks, the raw materials, the bricks, the mortar, the wood, and the cement for a home. It's uh, knowing what nouns are, what verbs are, uh, direct objects, conjunctions, things like this of a sentence. Now, logic takes those things and it makes sentences and it strings sentences together in a logical way. Uh, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, uh, or Socrates, yeah, Socrates is a man, therefore uh, Socrates is mortal. This is a logical statement. Uh, this is, uh, these are uh, the uh, bricks laid together to form a wall. It is uh, the uh, brick and mortar, uh, rather. It's the wood nailed together to make furniture. Rhetoric is all of this knowledge, all of these ways of communicated, uh, communication uh, put together in a way which can be expressed with wisdom and applicability to circumstance and with a view to the larger picture. Um, this is, uh, in, in, in the classical world, a rhetorician was, able, was adept at persuasion and communicating effectively. Um, and that's what the, the goal of, uh, of this grammar logic rhetoric is. And I would say, really, this way of viewing the bigger picture is a way that we can uh, be fully human and glorify God. And so I would say the Bible has something of this flow. Grammar gives, uh, uh, Genesis gives us the grammar of certain images, of certain um, uh, ideas which form, uh, that's a noun, that's a verb, and then it's strung together in the logic of the laws and the prophets, and then we have the rhetoric of uh, the new covenant, of the lawgiver incarnate. And some of the grammar that we have in our passage today is miracle birth, a barren woman where the Lord visits. You see this all throughout uh, Scripture. We also have um, we also have uh, uh, the casting out of a son, uh, the firstborn. Particularly, there's something with the firstborn and his uh, being rejected. Uh, this is a, a certain grammar that we see strung together throughout the rest of Scripture. And then lastly, we have the incorporation of Gentiles, and not just any Gentile, but a Gentile king uh, into in covenantal harmony and uh, union with the people of God. Uh, these are some fundamental building blocks that we see in this passage. So Genesis is our grammar. In verse 1, it says the Lord visited Sarah, and uh, we have uh, God's word, God's promise to Abraham coming to uh, fruition, that he was promised a child. And we have this repeated with uh, Hannah and uh, Elkanah, I think. <laughs> I'm probably butchering that, her husband. Um, 
which uh, uh, she's a barren woman, and there's also a concubine or uh, another wife who's mocking her. Um, and what's interesting about that is the, the angel that comes to her, it's actually Samuel in that whole thing. Samuel is the one who comes to her. He, th he thinks she's drunk, and uh, he's, he's the one who kind of sends her away. Um, uh, he's kind of the angel visiting. And then we have, uh, this is kind of a lesser-known one, but um, Manoah is Samson's father, and then his wife, we never know her name, she's just referred to as the woman, which harkens back to Eve, Eve as the woman, uh, the seed of the woman, um, or even Jesus referring to Mary as woman at the uh, wedding at Cana. Um, we sometimes think that he's being derogatory towards his mom uh, when, when we read that. Uh, I can't even remember what the exact phrase is, but, you know, woman, it's not my time yet kind of type thing. But I think there may be a little bit of that there. Um, but the main thing there is that woman, Eve, she, Mary is the new Eve. Mary is, uh, as, as are all of these women, um, and so she gives birth to Samson. That's another, that's another one. Um, and then you have, uh, um, yeah, Elizabeth and Mary. So you have these, you have this repeated all throughout scripture. Um, and the, the main point that we can derive from this is that while Sarah is a particular manifestation of this, she is a person that God is interested in, in her own story and her own hardships as he is with all of us, there was a much bigger thing going on than just Sarah and her getting to have a child of her own. And we sometimes lose that. Uh, to, to be honest, I don't think we do. And I'm, I, but I do, I do think that Christians in general are incredibly self-involved and very myopic in their thinking. And so this shows us that this promised child, this barren woman motif was not just Sarah and Isaac, but that this had larger cosmic ramifications all pointing towards the promised child, Christ. So there's a bigger story at play here. Uh, we often hear, at least among theologians, who are probably the dumbest of all of us, uh, that there is uh, conditional covenants and, and, and uh, unconditional covenants in the New Testament. Law and gospel. And even some Lutherans will parse up the Bible. It's just all law, all gospel. That's law. That's gospel. And the Abrahamic covenant is popularly known as an unconditional covenant. No conditions. And uh, it's weird to me. I, I see conditions here. God... God tells Abraham, um, you have to circumcise your child. You have to name him. He laughs. You have to name him Isaac. And here in verses three through four, Abraham does these things. He names him exactly what God had commanded. But what, what is God, a command from God? What, uh, what else can we call? You might call that a law, maybe. It's, it, it's, it's very similar. It's a word from God directed him to do something. Abraham obeyed it. And Moses goes out of his way to say, as the Lord commanded, as God commanded him. Um, he not only named him Isaac, but he circumcised him. So uh, we see Abraham being obedient here. The obedience of faith 
at work here. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed that he was going to be given this son. And that was a credit that was credited him to right as righteousness. There was nothing Abraham did at that moment. We might call that initial justification. Uh, I think everybody is on board with that. It doesn't matter what tradition you're part of. Abraham did nothing to merit that justification except trusting in God in that moment. But how does that justification work out? He obeys what God says. Faith works. These things are inextricable. You cannot se separate them. So that's something to uh, consider here. Moses goes out of his way to say, as the Lord commanded. Okay. So we, we also, Moses also tells us, and uh, Abraham was 100 years old, okay? Why does he tell us this? Well, I think it's to remind us that he was 75 when he left Haran. He, this was a quarter of a century in the making. He was 75 when he left Haran. That's significant because that's the first time that we read of God promising him all of these things. I'm going to make your name great. It was 25 years ago. And then it's finally coming to fruition. So Moses here is marking out half a, a quarter of a century in the work of him going around as his name meant exalted father and God of God's promising him to be the father of more children than the stars in the sky. And he didn't have any in some way. And so you, you, this is this kind of, uh, uh, um, barrenness, right? And that he had to bear. It was a burden, but he believed. And then you see that the, he's vindicated here. He is vindicated. This is a lot. It's a long time. That's a long time to become cynical, to become bitter, to, uh, to not believe, but Abraham believed. And, uh, and imagine that, uh, I, I think that this is, this is, there's a human aspect of this, of Isaac being called, being called laughter, being called, he laughs because of that, uh, that it's almost like holding your breath and you believe, but then when it finally happens, it's, there's this exhale and this, <laughs> you know, it's amazing. It's amazing that it happens. It's this hilarity of the impossible. Um, and maybe even with Sarah, I mean, now she's talking about it. Everybody's going to laugh with me because this is hilarious. Who would have thought in their old age, they would have, they would, this would have happened. And Sarah, even, I think there could be even laughter at herself, almost a laughter of embarrassment because she was laughing in unbelief earlier, a year before when God visited and said, this is, you know, look what's going to happen. And she's laughing. And so now she's laughing, I think somewhat at herself for her unbelief. Um, so there's that la there's that kind of embarrassment. There's the laughter of relief. There's the laughter of joy. All of these things are, are, are present here. So Isaac comes into the world. He laughs, comes into the world as a son of comedy. We have this, this comic ending, this, 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 uh, um, it's not a tragic ending. It's, uh, it's, it's an ending that feels good. Um, and that is what Isaac is. He is the son of comedy. He's the second son of comedy and of the God of comedy. The first son of comedy
is Ishmael. He's another son of comedy. But it's a different kind of comedy. It's a dark and twisted and jealous and envious comedy. Uh, our translations say that he was scoffing. But the word there is just Isaac. He's Isaacing. He's laughing. Um, scoffing is, I think, a good translation. That's what he's doing. But he's laughing. In some ways, I think that he's probably sarcastically laughing, uh, um, taking what Sarah has say, said, people will laugh with me about he laughs, about my son, he laughs. And Ishmael, he would have been, he's 14 years old here. He would, I think he's sarcastically laughing, not with her, but at her. Um, and throughout this passage, uh, Ishmael is never called by name. He's, also, he's always called um, the son of the Egyptian, the son of the woman. Even, uh, that's what Hagar refers to, refers to him. Even when God is speaking to Abraham, he just called, refers to him as boy or lad. And so we're constantly being reminded of whose son he is, that he's the son of unbelief. He's the son of this fleshly uh, lapse in belief, this slavery, this Egyptian woman. We also talk, we also we're talking about grammar. This is firstborn, second, secondborn, older brother, younger brother stuff. Um, this old, this older brother, this firstborn, he is, um, a son of the flesh, a son of the, uh, uh, bond woman. Um, and this, this firstborn first son we see, uh, manifested as Cain. Cain is an older brother. Esau, the older brother, Joseph's older brothers, Saul, not an older brother, but he's, you could say a firstborn. And uh, the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. All of these are Ishmaelites. All of these are sons of the flesh. And then what Paul does is he actually says that Ishmael is the Jews of the first century. He says that they are Ishmaelites. The younger brother, though, the second born, Paul says, those are Christians. And we see that in Scripture, too. Who's the younger brother in Scripture? Abel, um, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He's not second, but he's a younger brother. David, firstborn, second, Saul, then David. Firstborn is rejected. The second is the true, the promised one, the promised king. And then the prodigal son. He's the younger brother. And then on a cosmic level, I would say the archetypical level, the firstborn is Adam, and the secondborn is Christ. And so we see that here with Ishmael. The firstborn is scoffing at the secondborn. And in Galatians 4, Paul says that this, is, uh, this was a form of persecution that Ishmael had done. Uh, he says... We brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. In short, Christians are the children of promise. And he says, but as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. And what he's talking about there is the Jews who were persecuting the Christians. He was saying, this is Ishmael laughing 
at Isaac. So this is the seed of the woman in the, in the seed of the serpent at enmity with each other. Um, that's really what is going on here. It's also noteworthy to mention that uh, the persecution of Isaac by Ishmael came when he was weaned. Well, if we, if we take this um, for what Paul is comparing it to in Galatians 4, I would suggest to you that the uh, children of Abraham were weaned, were nurtured on the milk of the law and the prophets. They were nurtured on the milk of the old covenant. And when Christ came, they were weaned off of that milk into the solid food of Christ. And once that weaning took place, once they matured, then the Jews started persecuting the maturation. Hmm. They started persecuting the ones who were ready for solid food. Um, I'm not saying that this is <laughs> what this absolutely typologically means, but this is what came to mind uh, when I was reading Paul comparing his circumstance to uh, these two sons. And then I would say that this applies to our own time. How, how, who are the Ishmaels of our, of our own time? I would say that they are the conservative Christians in our church. These are our brothers, but they've mocked us. It is, there's a certain kind of maturation that we have attained, and we're done with the, we, we've been weaned, and now the mocking has come. And uh, this, is the, uh, this is the Christian who loves good sermons, the Christians who love good Bible studies. And um, Doug Jones has this book called Dismissing Jesus, and he talks about we just, we have these abstract doctrines and we just stare at them and we fine-tune our systematic theologies and... We have long sermon lectures, and isn't God so proud of us? Like, our foolishness of the cross is only manifested in intellectual foolishness, and we compare it to uh, liberals who don't believe in the resurrection, but we believe in the resurrection. Like, that's kind of the extent of our, of our faith. Abstract, intellectual foolishness. We believe in the supernatural, and that's about it. Um, and, they, and then these sophisticated Christians mock other Christians as being fundamentalist, as being too dogmatic when it comes to issues of sexuality, uh, and particularly divorce and remarriage. Uh, Call me Ishmael is the opening line of Moby Dick, and I think it would be appropriate for every pastor in America to open their sermon with the same line. Uh, these are men of the flesh, men of unbelief. They're dull of hearing. Um, and they're good for nothing but to be cast out in the desert, and perhaps they might actually hear the voice of God like Hagar and Ishmael did. Call me Ishmael. All right, verses 10 through 13, uh, we talked about Moses referring to... Uh, uh, Abraham, or uh, referring to Ishmael, 
not by name, but as the son of Hagar. Okay. Uh, in Genesis 16, we were told that uh, uh, Hagar fled from her mistress. This has already happened once. She's already actually been cast out, in a sense, into the desert. And the angel of the Lord came to her and said, you need to return and submit to your mistress. And she does. But what it appears is she did return. But if Ishmael's any indication of how Hagar has been raising her, or you could even say how Abraham has been nurturing his son, that Ishmael has not exercised full submission to the mistress, you could say. And that's, that's because Hagar hasn't exercised full submission to the mistress or to Abraham. And um, I think that uh, this is, this again pictures the Jews. <laughs> this pictures God's people, okay? They were cast out once with their unfaithfulness in Babylon. They were cast out into Babylon and Assyria. But what happens? They return, like Hagar did. Hagar returns. But they still weren't fully submissive. And then when the promised child came, when Christ came, they were cast out once again. They were, they're, they're, they, were, they were scattered. They were put out into the wilderness. And that's where we are at today. But I still think that the, the call for them to return to their mistress is still binding. The call of the gospel is still binding on them. And Paul even says this, right? He says this in Romans. They've been taken out. They've been taken out for our sakes. And whatever weird kind of mystery God has planned with that, they've been taken out. And that's been a blessing for us. And, and we are going to provoke them to jealousy once we get our act together and stop committing covenantal breaking, you know, at the drop of a hat. We actually might have some power instead of living in our pathetic little ghettos. We might actually have some power because Jews actually actually appreciate power. Unlike most Christians, we're happy to just be powerless and pathetic and losers in culture. But God has promised us more than that. God has promised us power in his gospel. So uh, I do think that they will ultimately be brought back in. Um. I do want to mention real quick. So Abraham's distressed about this and and, he, and the Lord does tell Abraham to um, listen to what Sarah had said. So he's confer he's affirming Sarah's suggestion. He's not giving Sarah authority over Abraham. He's saying, what she, listen to what she's saying, not listen to whatever she says. He's affirming what she had said, particularly about casting uh, Hagar out. So just, uh, uh, you know. A minor point there. Okay. Um, and the Lord, the Lord reassures Abraham that um, Ishmael is going to be made a nation, which is weird because he says, because he is your seed. But in the same sentence, he says, in Isaac will be your seed. So it's a weird, in Isaac will your seed be but I will make Ishmael a nation because he's your seed. <laughs> and I think that uh, Christians have made a very helpful uh, distinction, again, with the Jews and Christians. Jews we refer to as um, uh, children of Abraham according to the flesh, and 
Christians we refer to as children of Abraham according to the Spirit. We are true children of Abraham. They are children of Abraham according to the flesh. Isaac was a true son of Abraham in a fleshly and a spiritual sense. Ishmael was a true son of Abraham only in a fleshly sense. And God still was going to honor that because of purely his physical connection. And so there's three ways I think uh, Ishmael was made a nation. Um, the first, and I would say most insignificant, <laughs> are Muslims. Uh, Muslims trace their lineage back to Ishmael. And it's an amazing <laughs> new manifestation of Ishmael, uh, this persecution of God's people. Um, uh, and, the, and, and Muslims have been a nation, you could say, many nations. Um, and so that is a thing that is there. <laughs> the second and more important uh, aspect is direct fulfillment in Genesis itself. In Genesis 25, we are told that there are 12 princes that come from Ishmael, which is obviously significant with 12 uh, there. Um, so, uh, and also the word princes, it means rulers or lifted up ones. So you do see this exaltation of, of Ishmael's uh, descendants. And then the, the last and most important one, I would say, or maybe you could say the typological one in which Ishmael uh, is still made a nation, I would say is with Israel, according to the flesh. They've literally been made into a nation again uh, in the 20th century. And um, the New Testament specifically connects the Jews to Ishmael. Um, and so you do see uh, Ishmael becoming a nation uh, in all three of these senses. And furthermore, I would say because you have the 12 uh, princes and then you have the 12 Jews, <laughs> disciples, who are the patriarchs of the church, I would say all of this hints suggest that all of these nations of Ishmael are going to return to the mistress because the 12 is a symbol of the church who is the woman. Uh, in Revelation, we see the woman with the 12 stars around her head, which is the church. And so I think that they will ultimately be brought back in meaning they will repent, they will believe in Christ, and they will be brought back in as true uh, sons of Abraham, both the Jews and the Muslims. Okay, uh, verse 14 through 21. I uh, just want to point out a few, this is a few similarities with the next chapter we're going to read, with um, Isaac being um, sacrificed, the sacrifice of Isaac. You could say, I think, the, I think we are invited to see these as connected stories. It's in some ways sac the sacrifice of two sons, um, really. Uh, so, some of the similarities is in both cases, Abraham is giving up a son. He's, he's giving up a son. He's sacrificing a son. In both cases, we're told that Abraham wakes up early in the morning to do as the Lord directed. In both cases, we have um, Abraham laying something on whatever is being um, sacrificed. So he lays the water wineskin on the shoulder of Hagar, 
sends her out. He lays the wood on Isaac and places him on the altar. Um, so he's placing on something on whoever is being uh, given up. Isaac is placed on an altar. Ishmael is placed under a bush, a plant, uh, a miniature tree, if you will. Um, both sons are placed somewhere to die. Hagar places Ishmael under a shrub. Uh, Abraham places Isaac on the altar. Uh, some differences. Hagar withdraws from the son. Uh, she doesn't want to see him. Abraham draws near to his son. He's with him the entire time. He's close. Um, Hagar lifts up her voice and she weeps. Abraham stoically says the Lord will provide uh, a lamb. Uh, there's a, a, an, an exemplification of uh, faith uh, instead of despair. So there's a contrast there. Um, in both cases, God intervenes to save the, ch the, the boys. Uh, he stops Abraham with the knife, and then he, op uh, he, he um, uh, gives water to um, Ishmael. In both cases, uh, we see that uh, eyes are connected with this intervention. Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees the ram. Uh, Hagar's eyes are open to the water of the well. Uh, both sons are spared. Then we're told that Ishmael marries an Egyptian woman. And then at the end of the account with Isaac, we're told of the birth of Rebekah. And so there's a suggestion of, of who um, Isaac is going to marry. So the two sons of comedy are intertwined. Um, and here's where I think the most interesting, um, I guess, uh, typological aspect of this uh, lies. We all acknowledge that there's some Christological typology with the sacrifice of Isaac. But I think that there's also one here with uh, Ishmael. And I think that because of what we see with the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. What's happening in Leviticus? Anybody know Leviticus 16? Anybody? Anybody? The Day of Atonement, what happens is the priest takes uh, a ram or um, um, I'm, I'm butchering it. It's a lamb or a ram. I can't remember. But one lamb or ram is sacrificed and the other one, the sins of the people are imputed to it and it's sent out into the desert. So you have two lambs, two rams. One is sacrificed. One is sent out into the desert. Um, you have, I'll just, I'll read it here. Um, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, which, by the way, this laying on of hands I, is the reason why we lay hands on elders to ordain them. It's, this is the first time we see it. I mean, I think that this is why we do it. This is the first time we see this laying on of hands is the imputation of the people's sins to this goat. And I think in some ways, when you're laying hands on, on an elder, you are bearing the sins of the people. It's a Christological ritual action that we do for our leaders. Not that they are Christ, but they exemplify Christ to us. Um, but, okay, so Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, 
putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So that this is this is the uh, this is one of the things that the priests are instructed to do on the day of atonement, which is dealing with the sins of the people, which ultimately points to Christ who has imputed. Uh, uh, he bore our sins for us and he was uh, sent outside the camp in a way crucified outside the city. So he embodies these sacrifices on the day of atonement. And I think that Ishmael and Isaac also are kind of typological representatives of this, sending the people's sins out into the desert, uh, sacrificing a lamb for the forgiveness of sins as well. On a practical moral level, Abraham here is being told to leave his household again. He is sacrificing again. Jesus's words, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to leave your father and your mother and your brother and your sister. Abraham is constantly having to do this. He has to do it when he leaves Ur. He has to do it when he leaves Haran. And now here, he's having to do it to his son. And you, it, were, it goes out of its way to say it's distressing to Abraham. He loved Ishmael. Um, you know, so, and he is obedient, though. He is obedient to God in sending him out. And this, of course, in the New Testament, uh, I've referred to a lot of this. This is not what is going on here, but the principle of being willing to put the word of God and the commandments of, of God above our relationships, I would say is the fundamental heresy of our day. We place our relationships above the word of God um, and, and we make the word of God fit whatever, whatever we have to do to maintain our relationships. Abraham is militating against this here. Um, so he's not only losing Hagar and Ishmael, um, but in the next chapter, he's losing Isaac. Um, uh, although he, there, we're told that he knew that if he sacrificed Isaac, that God was going to bring him, could bring him back from the dead um, and would bring him back from the dead. Um, and then even there, it's likely that Sarah, he lost Sarah in that because when Sarah dies, she, she's in a different town. He has to go to a different town to bury her. Um, so it's possible that he lost Sarah in that. Uh, how could you sacrifice our promised child? Uh, you know, kind of thing. To me, it's very likely. Uh, we're not, you know, it's a speculation. But I think that Jesus' words of leaving your friends and family are, they're kind of inversely applicable here. He's not leaving them here. He's sending them away, which for us would be the excommunication that we've done, right? We've all sat in the seat of Peter and locked certain people out of the kingdom. <laughs> and that's sending them away in a sense. Okay, so lastly, real quickly, we'll talk about this covenant with Abimelech. I guess the main thing that I would say, there's a lot here, but we're, we're, I'm needing to, to, to close it down. Um, I would, I, would, I would just say that uh, similarly to, I think that, I think that there might be something of a whisper of the incorporation of the Gentiles into the covenant here. Um, particularly if we look at, 
you know, Paul's comparison of Ishmael and Isaac saying, as that was, now it is, saying that the Jews persecuting is like Isaac and all this stuff. Um, and that what immediately happens when Jesus comes or, or, or when he ascends and sends the disciples out? Well, the Gentiles are brought into communion with the house of Abraham and in this peaceful kind of way where they deal kindly with the Jew and the Gentile are those distinctions and that enmity is obliterated in Christ. And so there's this peaceful accord, this harmonious relationship that we enter into. And I think that this covenant with Abimelech signifies that in some sense. And I think it's also significant that it was a king and his military commander there as well, which uh, um, I think, I mean, in some ways, I, I, I think I'm the outline. I have it as the Constantinian covenant because uh, a few hundred years after Christ, Constantine comes into peaceful accord with the house of Abraham and with Christians and he protects them with his armies. <laughs> and so I think that we have that then all throughout history, even in cathedrals. The, in some ways, the roof, uh, uh, I've, I've seen the roof represents soldiers of the kingdom, which protect the saints of God so that they can worship. Um, and so we see that this covenantal um, uh, harmony with this Philistine, it's a Philistine king, Abimelech is, um, and, uh, yeah, so you have that, um, you have Abraham planting a tree, um, or plant, planting a grove, which I think either indicates a, a suggestion of the cross, which brings, uh, the house of Abraham and Gentiles together in an ultimate sense. And then also if it's a grove, it could also indicate a more rootedness of Abraham in the land when he has this king and his army basically protecting him now, he can more solidly root himself where he's no longer sojourning. Um, these are just speculations. Um, but uh, the last thing about it, there's this weird tiff about the well. And Abraham goes out of his way to be like, that's my well. And he, these seven ewe lambs, these uh, female uh, lambs are are given to him either in sacrifice uh, or or just as a gift like Abimelech gave him. And I'm not really totally sure what's going on here, but what came to mind was um, Abraham was zealous to maintain that as his uh, and not have that as as uh, Abimelech's. I think that it could possibly be the source of life doesn't come from earthly rulers. Earthly rulers have their role, but they're not redemptive in that sense. Uh, the children of Abraham are the guardians of the source of life in a way. We are the ones who have the wells and they belong to us. Um, uh, we are ministers of Christ who is uh, the the uh, the water that when when people drink they're not going to thirst again, and so when rulers of this world attempt to be redemptive in that kind of way that only the church can be, it becomes it, it's a mess. It's not what they're for. They are ministers of vengeance. They are ministers of violence to curtail greater violence. But they aren't ministers of redemption. They aren't ministers of grace uh, like we are, uh, like the children of Abraham are. Those wells belong to us and we are the uh, 
we are the, the stewards of that living water, in a sense. Um, that may not that may not have anything to do with it, but that's uh, that is what came to mind. So, uh, um, yeah, I guess that's it. All right, let's uh, let's sing the Lord's prayer. The charge is this: laugh with believing Sarah, laugh in the joy of Christ, the promised child. The impossible has been made possible. The inheritance of Abraham is yours in all of its unbelievable hilarity. Cast out the slave woman and her son. Do away with the flesh, the unbelief, the laughing in scorn at the faithful and the miraculous. Christ has taken your sin and sent it outside the camp. You are forgiven and cleansed of your sins, so act like it. Lastly, be thankful for the kings of the earth who are for the people of God, who have their militaries and might in service and protection of God's people. But know that we own the wells of water. They cannot and should not be seized by them. They are ours. The governments of the world cannot care for the world in this kind of way. The governments of the world are not in the business of redeeming, but they can be redeemed. They can be redeemed by our Redeemer. So pray for your king. Honor your king as your father Abraham did. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And amen.